0: Part 8 of My School Days by Enesbitt The recording is in the public domain Part 8 In Auvergne We were to leave Banurey Imagine my delight when I found we were to travel not by train but in an open carriage In this we were to drive through the mountains the mysterious snow-clad mountains into Spain where the Alhambra was and oranges, and Spanish-nuts, and all sorts of delightful things. But alas for my hopes! My brother at home in England chose to have whooping-cough, and so our horses' heads were turned north, and farewell for ever to my visions of Spain. We drove through lovely country to the other Bagnaret, Bagnaret de Luchon. On the way we passed a large yellow-stone castle on a hill. Most of the castle was in ruins but a great square tower, without door or window, still stood as strong and firm as on the day when the last stone was patted into place with the trowel. We wandered round this tower in vain, trying to find a door. But it is that there is no door, said our driver at last. Within that tower is buried a treasure. Some day a great wind will blow, and then that tower will fall to the ground, and then the folks of the village will divide the treasure." and become kings of France. It is an old prophecy. But, suggested my mother, has no one tried to get in and see if there really is a treasure? The driver crossed himself. The saints forbid, he said, who are we that we should interfere with the holy prophecy? Besides, the tower is haunted. We could not help wondering how far the ghost and prophecy— would have protected that tower from English village boys. We drove on, presently we stopped at a little wayside shrine, with a painted image of St. John in it, and a little shell of holy water. At the side of that shrine was a stone with an iron ring in it. Nothing more was needed to convince me that this was the entrance to a subterranean passage, leading to the tower where the treasure was. Imagine the dreams that occupied me for the rest of the drive! If I could creep back at the dead of night to the shrine—a thing which, as a matter of fact, I would much rather have died than attempted! If I should pull up that heavy stone and go down the damp subterranean passage, and find the treasure in iron boxes—rubies and diamonds and emeralds, and beautiful gold and silver dishes! Then we should all be very rich for the rest of our lives! and I could send Marguerite a talking doll, that opened and shut its eyes, and a pony-carriage, and each of the boys should have a new paint-box, with real moist colours, and as many sable brushes as they liked, twenty each if they wanted them, and I should have a chariot drawn by four tame zebras in red and silver harness, and my mother should have a gold crown, with diamonds for Sundays, and a silver one with rubies and emeralds for every day, and— I imagine I fell asleep at this point, and awoke to find myself lifted out of the carriage at Bagneret de Luchon. I didn't go back and lift up the stone with the iron ring, but the dream was a serviceable one, and did duty nobly in idle hours for many a long year. In fact, I come across it unexpectedly sometimes even now. We spent a day or two at Bagneret de Luchon, and I believe it rained all the time, we drove in a drizzling rain across a rather gloomy country to see the cascade d'enfer. As my memory serves me, we crossed a dreary plain and entered a sort of theatre or semicircle of high black rocks. In the centre of the horseshoe, down the face of the rock, ran a thin silver line. This was the cascade d'enfer, eminently unimpressive on first view, but when we got out of our carriage, and walked across the rough ground, and stood under the heavy shadow of the black cliffs. The thin white line had changed, and grown to a dense body of smoothly falling water, that fell over the cliff's sheer edge, and disappeared like a column of green glass into a circular hole at the foot of the cliff. "'That hole goes down, down,' said our guide. "'No one knows how far, except the good God who made it. The water did not fill up the hole. An empty black space, some yards wide, was between us and the falling water. Our guide heaved a lump of rock over the edge. "'You not hear it strike water,' he said, and though we listened for some time, we did not hear it strike anything. That was the horror of it. We drove on the next day to St. Bertrand de comming a little town on a hill with many steeples, whose bells answered each other with sweet jangling voices as we reached its gates in the peace of the evening. Most of this driving tour has faded from my mind, but I shall never forget the drive from Oralac to Murat. We started late in the afternoon because my sisters wished to see the Auvergne Mountains by moonlight. We had a large open carriage, with a sort of rumble behind, "'and a wide box-seat in front. "'The driver, a blue-bloused ruffian of plausible manners, "'agreed to take us and our luggage to Murat for a certain price, "'which I have forgotten. "'All our luggage was packed upon his carriage. "'We, too, were packed in it, and we started. "'About five miles from the town the driver halted "'and came to the door of the carriage. Mesdame, he said, "'a young relative of mine will join us here.' "'he will sit on the box with me.' "'My mother objected, that as we were paying for the carriage, "'we had a right to refuse to allow his friend to enter it.' "'As you will, madame,' he said calmly, "'but if you refuse to accommodate my stepson, "'a young man of the most high distinction, "'I shall place you and your boxes in the middle of the road "'and leave you planted there.' Three English ladies and a little girl, "'alone in a strange country,' Five miles from any town, what could we do?' "'My mother consented. "'A mile or two further on, two blue-bloused figures got up suddenly from their seat by "'the roadside. "'My father and brother-in-law,' said our driver. "'My mother saw that protest was vain, so these two were stowed in the rumble, and the "'carriage jolted on more heavily. "'We now began to be seriously frightened. "'I know I endured agonies of torture.' No doubt these were highwaymen, and at the nearest convenient spot they would stop the carriage and murder us all. In the next few miles two more passengers were added to our number, a cousin and an uncle. All wore blue blouses and had villainous-looking faces. The uncle, who looked like a porpoise and smelt horribly of brandy, was put inside the carriage with us because there was now no room left in any other part of the conveyance. The family party laughed and jolted in a patois wholly unintelligible to us. I was convinced that they were arranging for the disposal of our property and our bodies after the murder. My mother and sisters were talking in low voices in English. "'If we only get to the halfway house safe,' she said, "'we can appeal to the landlord for protection.' And, after a seemingly interminable drive, We got to the halfway house. It was a low, roughly built, dirty auberge, with an uneven earthen floor, the ceilings, benches and tables black with age, just the place where travellers are always murdered in Christmas stories. My teeth chattered with terror, but there was a certain pleasure in the excitement all the same. We ordered supper, it was now near midnight, and while it was being prepared, My mother emptied her purse of all, save the money promised to the driver, and a ten-franc piece to pay for our suppers. The rest of the money she put into a canvas bag, which hung round her neck, where she always carried her banknotes. The supper was like something out of a fairy tale. A clean cloth, in itself an incongruous accident in such a place. New milk, new bread, and new honey. When the woman brought in our bill, "'My mother poured out her woes "'and confessed her fear of the driver's intention. "'Nonsense,' said the woman briskly. "'He's the best man in the world. "'He's my own son. "'Surely he has a right to give his own relations "'a lift in his carriage if he likes.' "'But we had paid for his carriage. "'He has no right to put other people in "'when we are paying for it.' "'Oh, yes, he has,' retorted the woman shortly. "'You paid him so much to take you to Murat, "'and he will take you to Murat.' "'but there was nothing said about his not taking anyone else. "'And he says now he won't take you on to Marat "'unless you pay him double the fare you agreed for. "'His horses are tired.' "'I should think they were,' muttered my sister, "'considering the number of extra passengers they have dragged.' "'My mother emptied her purse on the table. "'You see,' she said, "'here is only the money I promised your son, "'and enough to pay for our suppers.' "'but when we get to Murat I shall find money waiting for me, "'and I will give him what you ask.' "'I believe this conduct of my mother "'saved us at any rate from being robbed by violence. "'The inn stood quite by itself "'in one of the loneliest spots in the mountains of Auvergne. "'If they had believed that we were worth robbing "'and had chosen to rob us, nothing could have saved us. "'We started again. "'My mother now began to make light of the adventure.' and my terror subsided sufficiently for me to be able to note the terrible grandeur of the scenery we passed through. Vast masses of bare volcanic rock, iron-gray in the moonlight, with black chasms and mysterious gorges, each one eloquent of bandits and gnomes, and an absolute stillness, save for the rattle of our carriage, as though, with vegetation, life too had ceased— as though indeed we rode through a land death-still, under the enchantment of some evil magician. The rocks and the mountains beyond them towered higher and higher on each side of the road. The strip of flat ground between us and the rocks grew narrower, till presently the road wound between two vast black cliffs, and the strip of sky high up looked bright and blue. The tall cliffs were on either side, and presently I saw with dismay that in front of us the dark cliff stretched right across the road. We seemed to be driving straight into the heart of the rock. In another moment, with a crack of the whip and an encouraging word or two, the driver urged his horses to a gallop, and we plunged through a dark archway into pitch darkness, for, with a jolt, the carriage lamps went out. We had just been able to see that we had passed out of the night air into a tunnel cut in a solid rock. Oh, how thankful we were then that the porpoise and all the rest of our driver's relations had been left behind at the halfway house. The driver lighted the lamps again almost immediately. He seemed in a better temper than before, and explained to us that this was the great arch under the mountains, and to me, he added, it will be something for you to remember and to tell your children about when you are old which was certainly true that tunnel was unbearably long as we rattled through its cavernous depths i could not persuade myself that at any moment our drivers accomplices might not spring out upon us and kill us there and then who would ever have known oh the relief of seeing at last a faint pinprick of light it grew larger and larger and larger and at last through another arch we rattled out into the moonlight again. Of course, I shall never know now how many of the terrors of that night were imaginary. It is not pleasant, even now, to think of what might have happened. At last we reached our journey's end, a miserable filthy inn, and with a thankful heart saw the last of our blue-bloused driver. The landlady objected very strongly to letting us in and we objected still more strongly to the accommodation which she at last consented to offer us. The sheets were grey with dirt, and the pillows grimed with the long succession of heads that had lain on them. A fire was the only good thing that we got at Marat. To go to bed was impossible. We sat round the fire, waiting for daylight and the first morning train. My mother took me on her knee. I grew warm and very comfortable and forgot all my troubles. Ah, I said with sleepy satisfaction, this is very nice, it's just like home. The contrast between my words and that filthy, squalid inn must have been irresistibly comic, for my mother and sisters laughed till I thought they would never stop. My innocent remark, and some bread and milk, the only things clean enough to touch, cheered us all up wonderfully, and in another twenty-four hours my mother and sisters were all saying to each other that, perhaps, after all, there had been nothing to be frightened about. But all the same, I don't think any of that party would ever have cared to face another night drive through the mountains of Auvergne. End of Part 8